Well, Baylife, I am once again so glad to be with you as we continue our series in the book of First Peter. And I'll admit that initially, Mark and I had a conversation probably towards the end of March, the beginning of April, and we decided to tackle chapter one of First Peter in light of the, the quarantine and the coronavirus pandemic that was taking place. Mark sent me a text one day and said, you know, God's just been calling my attention to this part of scripture. And why don't you take a look at it and tell me if you think that this would, this would be worth teaching. And so we read through it and, and both agreed this, this would be a wise thing for us as a church to walk through. But we only committed to chapter one in that conversation. And, and yet as time has gone on, I think the both of us have decided that this is a book in our current cultural climate that needs to be preached in its entirety. And we, we have felt the Spirit leading us to, to not just stop with chapter one of the book of First Peter, but to keep going. And so we find ourselves now in chapter two. Because First Peter is a book that has profound truths that I think can speak to us in this moment. It's a book that challenges us. It's a book that convicts us. It's a book that shapes us. Peter is writing to Christians who at the time found themselves wrestling with, with what it looked like to live lives of spiritual exile. Many of them were in their home cities, their home countries, and yet as they had become Christians, they felt increasingly out of touch with the culture in which they grew up. And so Peter writes. He writes to these Christians scattered across Asia Minor to tell them what it looks like to live in light of God's rule and reign, even while they are scattered across the kingdoms of the world. That's what our, our passage is about today. Last week, I was, I was so grateful that Mark uh, spoke to the challenge of racial injustice that we are confronting now as a nation, and he walked us through the first four verses of chapter two of First Peter where Peter tells us as Christians in the church that he's writing to, to put away malice and deceit because these are not the character traits of citizens that live within the kingdom of God. And yet Peter still has more to say about who God's people are and how God's people should live. So if you've got a Bible, could you do me a favor and turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. And, and let me just read this passage of scripture as we walk through it together. And would you hear God's word as I read this now? Peter tells us this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. This is God's holy word. 
So Peter begins this particular passage and portion of his letter by using a metaphor. He describes Jesus as a living stone. And that's probably a reference to both the Old Testament and Jesus' resurrection. He's a living stone because Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He's been raised by the power of the Spirit. But there's this Old Testament reference buried here as well. Psalm 118 describes the stone that the builders rejected, which has become a cornerstone. And there were many Jewish people in Jesus' day who believed that this passage referred to the Messiah. And so so Peter says to, to this crowd that he's writing to, Jesus is the stone that was rejected ultimately in the cross, and yet he is alive and he is the cornerstone. He uses this building analogy. Now, I'm going to admit to you, just up front, I am not a particularly handy man. Uh, The only thing I really know how to do is to change the tire on my car. I can't change the oil, and I can't fix anything else in my house. (laughs) So so the beauty of owning an apartment was that I didn't have to. I didn't have to fix anything. I had a landlord that I could call and ask for help. And in December and January, when my wife and I began to look into moving out of our apartment and looking into buying a home, I'm just going to be honest, I had no real idea what I should be looking for. So my home buying criteria was, does this place look cool and will it impress my friends? It was not, will this thing withstand the hurricanes that Florida is known for? And because our apartment was in Seminole Heights, we were looking in that area and looked in that area. And if you're not familiar with that particular part of Tampa, most of the homes are old, 100 years minimum, some of them more than that, and most of them are wood frame. Now, this is awesome if you're looking for the sort of house that's going to get you a bunch of reblogs on Pinterest. It's not so awesome if you're a newly married couple and this is your first home and you don't have the money to fix the damage of 100 years on a particular property. One of the things that was common in these homes was that they were not built on a foundation. Rather, they were put on cinder blocks and they were built with a crawl space under them. And so very early on, our realtor, my friend Josh, pointed out that because there was no foundation, because there was no concrete or stone upon which the house was built, that they weren't particularly sturdy. I'm just going to be honest, I didn't believe him at first. I, I, I was like, eh, whatever, like, they're cool. I see them on the internet all the time. They're, they're the cool houses that people want to live in. But the more houses we walked through in January and in February, the more I began to feel it, to feel the, the shakiness of, of a home that was built without a foundation. And the more I began to feel the, the sturdiness of a home that was set upon a rock rather than one that was suspended upon cinder blocks. And Peter draws on this building metaphor to describe who Jesus is in relation to the church. He tells us that the foundation of the church, the cornerstone upon which he is built, is Christ. That he is the rock of our salvation, as we say in our songs. And this means that the church is able to face any and all circumstances because it is built upon him and he does not fail. Peter goes on to say that that in some way, we, as we come to Christ, as we approach Jesus, we become like Christ and that now we are also living stones, not cornerstones, but living stones. 
made alive by the resurrection of Jesus, and that this community of people who have been chosen by God and redeemed by Christ and sealed by the Spirit, this community is being built up into a temple for God's glory. But I wonder if you notice this in Peter's language. Peter tells us that we are being built as a spiritual house. Not you are building a spiritual house. The language of Peter is passive. Because the reality is that we have never at any point been responsible for building the church. The church is built by God. The church is built by Jesus. And so Peter draws out this point. He, he says to us, essentially, Jesus is both the foundation of the church, he's the cornerstone, but he is also the one who builds the church. It belongs to him. He is the one who raises us up and makes us a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is so important for us to grasp because what this means is that the task of building God's kingdom does not rest on any human being. It doesn't rest on me, it doesn't rest on Mark, it doesn't rest on our elders or whatever celebrity pastor you find particularly compelling whose sermons you listen to through podcasts. The responsibility of building the church rests in the strong and capable hands of the Son of God. And this is, this is especially significant because Peter keeps using these rock terms. Jesus is the cornerstone. We are living stones. And it's interesting when you go back to the Gospels, Jesus gives Peter the nickname of the rock. He calls Peter the rock. Jesus is always changing people's names. And yet Peter recognizes that even though he's an apostle, even though he's been appointed by Christ, even though he and the other apostles have significant authority in the early church, even though he's been tasked with proclaiming the gospel, even though Jesus calls him the rock, he is not the ultimate rock. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the one who builds the church. Jesus is the true rock. And this should both comfort us and it should also compel us. This, this should comfort us because it reminds us that no matter how fierce the persecution, no matter how dark the world seems, the church of Jesus will not fail. So often I feel like I have conversations with Christians who have such a bleak outlook on things. As if everything rests on our ability to confront the challenges that we face in the world today with no, no concept of the fact that the church's fate is ultimately in Jesus' hands and as surely as Christ is raised and lives, the church will live. Several hundred years ago, Napoleon Bonaparte, the great military leader, was in a heated discussion with some Roman Catholic bishops and I don't know the nature of the conversation. I don't know what it was they were arguing about, but he was essentially trying to bully uh, these church leaders into doing what he asked them to. And so he made this threat in, in almost the, the heat of his anger. And he said, do you not know that I have the power to destroy the church? If you don't know, if you don't do what I say, I will destroy the church. And one of these bishops responded to him and he said, your majesty, we, the Catholic clergy, have done our best to destroy the church for 1,800 years. We have not succeeded, and neither will you. Now, the reality is that while we aren't Roman Catholic, the, the, the impulse here is appropriate. And history proves this again and again. Our present world proves this. 
As we look to our brothers and sisters in the underground church in China, despite the increasing persecution that they face, the church is exploding. As we look to our our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, as I talk with friends who are involved in doing evangelism in closed countries and in this particular part of the world, the church is growing by leaps and bounds in spite of persecution because it does not rest on the power of man, it rests on the power of God. And so God's people always have reason for hope as he builds the church. But I think this should also compel us. It should compel us not to turn away when we grow frustrated and disheartened with so many of the issues that that we find when we come to the church. You know, we, we live in an age of impermanence. We live in a time where the temptation is always to jump ship when things grow difficult. The temptation is always to push away from the table and say, I'm done. So many friends of mine have not walked away from Jesus, at least they wouldn't say they have, but they have walked away from the church because whatever particular congregation they were involved in has become so hurtful and so frustrating that they say, I'm done. Nothing will ever change. I'm finished with this. And as our society has this important and long overdue conversation around the issue of racism within our broader culture and in the church, I'm sure that the temptation for many of us who've been raising this issue for a long time, the the temptation will be to give up. The, The temptation will be to say the situation is too bleak, the issue runs too deep, the sin is too entrenched, nothing will ever change. No doubt for many black brothers and sisters, the pain here is significant and I can't even begin to understand what it's like. Although I've spent time listening to people who I love and trust this week, and I'm I'm trying to understand. But let me just offer some comfort from the words of scripture here. In spite of the fact that the church has failed in so many ways, that there are so many sins that affect pastors, church leaders, denominations, Jesus will not let this stand. He will not let the horrors of abuse or the ravages of sin or the stain of racism have the final word in the life of his bride. We see how seriously Jesus takes this in the book of Revelation. He removes the spirit from churches that refuse to repent. And yet, the promise of scripture is that the global body of gospel people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, it will not fail. Jesus will have his bride and she will be blameless before him on the day of his return. And knowing all this, it should compel us to do the hard work of laboring to see the body of Christ conformed to his image in all aspects of life because we know that that end is as certain as Christ was raised. This living stone. Peter goes on. To to warn that the message of Jesus, the foundation of the church, it's going to be a stumbling block. And and we saw this even in Jesus' own day. As you read through the Gospels, you see the challenge that Jesus presents. 
I'll, I'll confess that over the last couple of weeks, my wife and I have been sort of drawn into this show called The Chosen. I'm, I'm curious, has anybody seen it? So a lot of people have been posting about it on social media, and I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't hold out a lot of hope for Christian movies. They don't tend to be particularly good, and I'm sorry if that offends someone. And so when our friends were saying, no, you've got to check out the show, it's really, really good, I was like, eh, uh, eh, no. But I'm going to be honest, they were right and I was wrong. It's a, it's a really, really good show. And although a lot of it is speculative and it's sort of built around the narrative of Scripture, one of the things that I've appreciated about this show, and it's the reason why we watched all eight episodes in two days, is because it captures well the challenge that Jesus posed for people during his earthly ministry. For the Pharisees, for, for many of the religious leaders, Jesus was a source of perpetual outrage. He was a stumbling block. And yet for the apostles and the people that Jesus healed, for those who experienced the grace of his gospel, he was their salvation. And we shouldn't be surprised when we see this in our world today. We shouldn't be surprised that the gospel is a stumbling block or that it's offensive. It always has been from the writing of the gospels themselves. But for those of us who have repented and believed, for those of us who have been transformed by the work of Christ, Peter says that we have become something new entirely. He says that we have become living stones being built up into a temple. And then he says we have been made priests to offer acceptable sacrifices to God. What, what might these sacrifices be? If you're new to the Bible, it might be helpful to just kind of know that in the Old Testament, whenever people would sin in the, in the nation of Israel, and when the nation as a collective whole committed sin, like idolatry and turning away from God, the priests from the tribe of Aaron were given the task of sacrificing animals and burning them up on an altar in the temple so that the sins of Israel could be atoned for. And very often, God himself would light the fire for this sacrifice. If you grew up in Sunday school with the felt board and everything, you've probably heard the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where Elijah sacrifices the animal and places it on the altar, and then God sends the fire down himself to consume the sacrifice. But here's what we know when we read the rest of the Bible. This is not how sin is dealt with anymore. Because Jesus is the final sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So no longer is that sort of sacrifice necessary to deal with our guilt. It's happened once for all on the cross. And yet Peter still says, you've been made a, a kingdom of priests to offer acceptable sacrifices to God. What I think Peter has in mind here is the sort of thing that Paul is talking about in Romans 12. He, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The sacrifice for sin has been made. Sin for the people of God, past, present, and future, has been atoned for in the once-for-all death of Jesus on the cross. But the sacrifice that remains 
is the sacrifice of a holy life. That's what Paul says. Our sins have been dealt with and now we offer this sacrifice of praise to God in holy living. That looks like a deep concern for justice and righteousness. This looks like mercy for the vulnerable and the downcast. It looks like being outraged at the sin that we see in the world and the sin that we see in our own hearts. It looks like consistent repentance and a call on God for mercy. It looks like a desire to see the knowledge of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is the sacrifice that is worthy and pleasing to God. But can I just tell you that the fire we need to offer this sort of sacrifice is not going to be found within us. Human beings on their own do not have the ability to live this sort of life. God himself must light the fire. And that is exactly what he does on the day of Pentecost. I wonder if you've thought about this before. Um, On the day of Pentecost, which Peter was there for, And in this passage of scripture, Peter is repeating portions of his Pentecost sermon. The Holy Spirit is poured out by Jesus on the apostles and he appears above them like tongues of fire. And this is not the way that the Holy Spirit appears elsewhere in the New Testament. At the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove, but here at Pentecost, he comes as fire. As if to say, That the fire of God's spirit is what we need in order to offer our lives up to God in this sacrifice of praise. God himself, by his spirit, lights the fire. So whether you are of a charismatic and Pentecostal background where fire is something you hear about often, or whether you are a high church liturgical Episcopalian believer who thinks that all this stuff kind of freaks you out a little bit, This much is clear. We cannot offer our lives to Jesus without the consuming fire of his spirit. And he pours it out on the day of Pentecost. But Peter has more to say about the fact that we are a priesthood. He he goes on in verses 9 and 10 to describe us as a chosen race, as a holy nation as a people for God's own possession. And and there's no way that we can read these words of Peter without thinking about the conversation happening in our culture. The necessary conversation happening in our culture. This is the astounding thing. As Peter says to these people, you are a holy nation, you are a chosen race. And the people that he's writing to, he lists at the beginning of First Peter, and they are people from all sorts of different ethnic and racial groups. They are people of all different nationalities. And in the Roman Empire, they never would have been seen as comprising a single unit. They would have been seen as being at odds with each other. But God has done something decisively in Jesus to tear down this dividing wall of hostility so that these people who were once many and scattered and at odds are now brought together. A theologian who's been so helpful to me in recent days is a man named Jamar Tisby and he calls attention to this in a small group study that he wrote called The Color of Compromise. And he says this, that the peace between ethnic groups is not something that we have to achieve. 
It has to be received by faith and lived out. It's something Jesus has done. But he goes on to say, historically, we haven't lived out these truths. And that is to our great detriment. It's to our shame because the same spirit that lit the sacrificial fire of Pentecost in the apostles also caused them to speak in tongues. Also caused them to speak in languages that people of every tribe and every nation could understand so that the gospel could go forward in power, not just to one particular group, but to all peoples. It's interesting that that Peter himself once forgot about this. It's one of the most heated passages in the New Testament. It's in the book of Galatians, which is also perhaps the angriest book in the New Testament. Paul says that at some point in Peter's ministry, he started refusing to eat with Gentiles, with non-Jewish Christian converts. He revoked table fellowship from them. He stopped sitting down with them. He began to reestablish the walls of hostility that Christ had done away with. And Paul tells us in Galatians that he rebuked Peter publicly. That's an astounding thing to think about. Peter was the one who was with Jesus. Paul is the one who has been brought in. Peter is the one who was there when Jesus was betrayed. Paul is the one who was killing Christians. And yet Paul stands up to Peter. Why? Paul says Peter's actions were out of step with the truth of the gospel. The division that he brought into the church, the the lessening of brothers and sisters, this was not the lifestyle of someone who serves the Lord Jesus Christ who poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. So what it seems has happened is that Peter has come to understand by the time he wrote this letter his mistake because he tells us that God in Christ has united people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation into a new nation for the purpose of declaring his excellencies, declaring his goodness, celebrating his kindness. That's the reason why God did it. And and what's astounding about this is it's almost as if Peter says that the God that we serve is so great and so excellent and so majestic that in order for his mercy to be proclaimed, it requires an assembly of people made up of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that the gospel of Jesus must be proclaimed in 10,000 languages with 10,000 accents and dialects in all of the beautiful diversity of those who bear Christ's image. That's the pattern that the Spirit sets on the day of Pentecost. That's the pattern that Peter forgot in the book of Galatians. That's the pattern that Peter recovers here in his letter to the churches in Asia Minor. When this doesn't happen, as has sadly so often been the case, something crucial is lost. But if it does, as it did in the early centuries of the church, the gospel goes forward with supernatural, spirit-driven power. So the task ahead is great. The challenge is real. The conversations are serious. 
But thank God that we have not been left alone to sort this out. The same spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost has been poured out upon us. The same spirit that Peter received, if you are in Christ, you too have received. So, Bailiff, I want to invite you, those in this room and those who are tuning in online, would you pray with me? Would you pray that the spirit of Jesus works powerfully here in our church? So that we can receive by faith what Jesus has done. That we can live in the truth of the gospel that saved us. So that we can be living stones, a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests that Jesus has purchased with his life. So that the gospel can go forward in power. And we can proclaim the excellencies of him who has shown us mercy and the one in whom the future of the church is found. That's my prayer for us. I just ask you to pray it with me as we seek the Spirit's wisdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you. In a world of so much pain, in a world of such anxiety, in a world of so much sin, we desperately need you. We need the fire of the Spirit to help us live holy lives. We need the Spirit poured out at Pentecost to give us the ability to celebrate and embrace the the beautiful tapestry of diversity that is the body of Christ. Lord Jesus, the church is in your hands. And you will have your bride. Help us in this moment to live faithfully, to honor you to live in light of the gospel, to be living stones worthy of being a temple of your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Christ's matchless name, and we say, amen.
is our prayer that you would make us a church that presents as our lives a living sacrifice holy worthy pleasing to you make us a church deeply concerned with justice make us a church deeply concerned with holy living Make us a church where the truth of the gospel is evident. That the reconciling work of Christ is clear. Make us a church that proclaims the mercies that you have shown in calling us out of darkness and into light. We ask that you would do these things in the power of the Spirit to the glory of the name of Jesus. And we say amen.